pray together as we look at God's word tonight. Father, it's a privilege to be able to open your word and to read it for ourselves and to share it together. And we ask, Lord, that as we do that tonight, you would reveal your truth to us. Father, we pray that this will be a, a pleasure and a privilege to have been here. Help us as all of us seek to know you more, we pray. Amen. A lot of us have been reading this week from the 40 Days of Purpose book, and many of us, I'm sure, have been really enjoying it as we've dug in each day and got different things out of it. And this, for me, is what I've been reading alongside that. I've been looking at 1 John for the last little while, and I, to me, it seems to fit really well with what we have actually been looking at this last week because it puts some meat onto the bones of some of the ideas that are starting to be expressed that will continue to be expressed as we go through the rest of the 40 Days of Purpose, the next five weeks that lay ahead of us. So I hope that you'll see some of that as we go through it tonight. And I wanted to start off with an image. What do you do in your house if you lose something? We must have about 15 different torches in our house, and yet we would be very hard pushed to find one that works at any time. Because we have got two inquisitive boys and they take torches apart because they like to see how they work on the inside and inevitably they lose a bit when they are trying to put it back together. So we lose something, something important goes running under the cupboard that nobody can reach. What do you do to get it out? Well, you get a light and you search using the torch. And that light, because we don't have a torch anywhere near as big as this one, we have a small torch, if we can find one at all, it just shines a little light into a specific place. And sometimes that's good enough for us to be able to see. On the other hand, you could have this kind of light. This kind of searchlight that doesn't just light up a tiny little corner, but lights up absolutely everything that is around it. And I think that the God that we are talking about tonight is not like that tiny, small torch, but he is like that enormous searchlight that wants to light up every part of our world and every part of us individually as we stand before him. He wants no dark corners left behind. He doesn't want them there because his character is intrinsically light itself. Think of every adjective that you can to go along with light. They are all lovely images. Light gives us clarity. It gives us visibility. Light gives us warmth. It's pleasant. It's a lovely thing to be in the light. God, by his character in his holiness, is full of this light. 
God is light. There is no darkness at all. It is such a contrast. And it's about his presence as well. A few years ago, we were on holidays down in the New Forest for that great event that we probably all remember, the total eclipse of the sun. It was the strangest experience. Sam and Tom were only smaller then. I can't remember quite how many years ago it was, but it was a few. And we were on this holiday and everything was normal. And then all of a sudden, nothing was normal at all. It started to get gradually darker. And as it got darker, I'm not sure if it really did get dramatically colder, but it felt like it did. And all of those nice adjectives that I've used to describe light, they were all absent. It was spooky. It was kind of eerie. It was chilling. It wasn't nice. It wasn't lovely at all. It was just plain weird. And it got really dark. And it's the best analogy, I think, to give us some idea of what it is like if we take God out of things. If we forget about God's presence altogether, then it is like living with that total eclipse of the sun all of the time. Because there is nothing that will give us light and move us in the way that God can. If you like, it's like saying that God is the searchlights and any other kind of light that we bring into our lives can only be a torch because nothing else is totally light. In everything else, there is darkness as well. I keep forgetting how many times I've got to push this. In the New Living Translation, Verse 6 starts with, so we are lying. In the NIV, it says more, we lie and do not live by the truth at the end of the verse. It's talking in that verse and the next couple all about sin and what sin is. And I think the use of the word lying is a really good one. Because for so many of us, lying is the sin that we do most often. Sometimes we do it without even noticing that we are. We go in for what we might call nice lies. They're the kind of lies when somebody has just been to the hairdresser's looks you straight in the eye and says, do you like my new haircut? Yes, it's lovely, it looks awful, you're thinking inside, but you don't say. Or, oh, it got lost in the post. My phone wasn't working, it's the computer. Do you know, we've had terrible trouble with that computer. I'm sure sometimes those things are genuine. But sometimes they are what fit into the category of nice lies. Sometimes we tell what the world calls 
white lies. They're the kind of lies that kind of don't really hurt anybody, but they're still not the truth either. They're those things that are just not very important, but sometimes we find that we tell lies about them. Sometimes we tell real lies. We know we are doing it, and yet we do it anyway. Why is that? Why do we find it so much easier to tell lies than we find it to always tell the truth? Or to be people of real integrity. That's what it means if we are people who always tell the truth and live by the truth. We are people of integrity. And yet we find that so often we lie. And part of the reason why that happens is because of what the rest of the verse says. It's talking about this idea of telling lies or not living by the truth in the context of fellowship with God as opposed to spiritual darkness. They are mutually exclusive ideas because true fellowship with God is all about a relationship with God, a dependence upon God, a partnership with God, a togetherness with God, a trusting and a caring and a nurturing walk with God that allows us to know his presence with us all of the time. Spiritual darkness, on the other hand, could be summed up as all of the opposites to that. Things like selfishness, independence, arrogance, anything that comes under the word for sin. It's when we ignore God's word, when we ignore God's people, when we lie to ourselves about our own actions. We can't do both things at the same time. We cannot live for God and live for ourselves. We cannot say that we want fellowship with him, but at the same time, make all of the choices that lead us away from him. And as we keep going with the 40 days of purpose, ultimately, this is where we are going to get to, because we can't escape from it. You can't have it both ways. You can't be double-minded. But so often we are, aren't we? And yet God steps in to help us out. Take a look back at Romans chapter 7. Paul writes beautifully. Sometimes he writes in the most confusing way on earth, but in this bit, he has got it so right. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 21. And I kind of wondered if we could read them together, but only read them if you actually identify with what he is saying here. Okay, that's what I want you to do. I want you to think, do you identify with what Paul is saying in these verses? 
If you do, read it out loud with me. If you don't, then just listen to the rest of us read it. Let's give it a go. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, as it is. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I couldn't have put it better myself. Do you not find yourself in that situation just about every day? You get up in the morning and you plan to do good. You have your quiet time, you read your 40 days of purpose section for that day and you are, humanly speaking, determined that this is going to be a good day. And you get down to the breakfast table and the whole four-pint container of milk goes flying across the table and onto the carpet, which you only actually washed a couple of days ago, and now you know it's going to stink. And what happens? Those lovely, blessed thoughts that you have just had while you have been having your quiet time go sailing somewhere out of the nearest window. And you are angry and frustrated. And that is the tone that takes you into the day. And your next interaction might be based on that. And the next, and the next. And that day that started so well has so quickly disintegrated around you. It's not what you wanted to do. But somehow or other, you have done it anyway. It is the nature of being human. There's a lot in the Bible about what it is like to be human and to keep failing. And before we get on to the second part of the verse, I just wanted to reflect personally for a moment on this one. A couple of weeks ago, we were in a church meeting here and somebody asked me a question and it wasn't a difficult question, but I became flustered. And in answering the question, I told a lie. And I knew it was a lie as I said it, but I said it anyway. And I got home and I went to bed. 
And I don't know if you do this, but before I go to bed every night, I pray. I've done it since I was a child. Sometimes my life would be easier if I didn't do it. If I didn't invite God to just share, bring to me any bad things I've done during the day. You know, if I didn't do that, I'd sleep. I said it, Lord, I know I've done wrong today. Show me the things that I've done wrong. I had the most dreadful night. I basically just didn't sleep. And I worried all night about what I was going to do about this lie that I had told. And I decided that the only thing I could do was to actually pick up the telephone the next day and phone this person to whom I had lied and then explain to her what I had done. And then I thought, well, that is absolutely stupid. I'm a I'm a middle-aged woman. I'm not going to go and tell somebody else that I've lied to them about something stupid anyway. It wasn't really important. But I felt convinced through the night that that was what I had to do. So the next morning, I dutifully felt like an absolute idiot. But I picked up the phone and I said, I'm so sorry. I lied to you yesterday. She was very graceful and said, I'm sure I've done that kind of thing too, and I'm sure she hasn't, but never mind. It was a nice thing that she said. It helped me a lot. Ask God to give you a brutal conscience. Brutal, that is, with yourself, not with other people. That's what David, I think, is expressing in Psalm 51. It's the psalm that he wrote after his betrayal, really, with Bathsheba, and after Uriah had been killed. And it's a psalm where he is pouring out his heart to God, and he is saying, in effect, God, before you, and you only, have I sinned, and I've done what's evil in your sight. That is how God views all of our sin. And he wants us to have a brutal conscience towards it. And he does that because of the second part of these verses here. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. That's triumphant. Jesus cleanses us from every sin when we take our sin seriously. Cheap grace is suggesting that Jesus' death did not really cost that much. Cheap grace is saying that our sin does not matter to God. Cheap grace is saying that if I sin today and then sin again intentionally tomorrow, that doesn't matter because God's word has said that Jesus will cleanse us anyway. That is not where it is at. There is a lot about intentions in Scripture as well as about these things. If we keep on sinning, that doesn't mean that God has the chance to show us more grace. 
No, there will come a time when it stops. Jesus loves to forgive us. He loves to cleanse us from every sin. But at the same time, he wants us to really make the decision to live for him and to allow that light that we looked at right at the beginning to so shine on us and change us that we no longer want to go on doing those same sins again and again and again, but that instead we want to walk on with him in true fellowship, living in the light. And it gives us a different life altogether. It gives us the chance to live the kind of life where we are not ashamed, where we can look in the mirror when nobody else is there and we can say with all integrity, you have had a good day today. And it is just great to be able to say that. And it is great to go to bed saying, Lord, I'm looking forward to sleep. Yes, I've still done wrong, but I have not wanted to. Lord, you know my heart. Show me even now all the bits of my heart that you know I secretly want to keep a secret, even from you. Lord, help me to see my life as you see it. That's what so much of this 40 days is all about. We are not an accident is one of the things that we read this week. And we are eternal is another. And living in the light is all about setting ourselves up for the right sense of that eternity. It's starting now doing well so that we go on with him, not backwards, but on. Let's pray again. Father, thank you so much that your light is just like that searchlight. It's a light that surrounds us completely, that nothing we do, nothing we say, nothing we think can escape the power of your light. Father, search your light into our hearts, we pray. Show us all of those areas that we still have not given over completely to you. Show us, Lord, our sin and give us sleepless nights because of it. If that's what it takes, Lord, to change us around and to mould us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. Father, help us to live in your light. Please, Lord, change us so that we want to be there with you. Amen.